Today's scripture reading is from Mark 12, 28-34. And among the scribes came up and heard, and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the word of God, and the Lord is born. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other, no other besides him. And to love one with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You were not far from the kingdom of God, and as that you no dared to ask many more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see all of you here. We are very, very glad that you've decided to join us in, in worship this afternoon. My name is Dave Hahn, and it really is my privilege as always to be able to open God's Word with and for you. So next week's Sunday is Valentine's Day. Who's pumped? Right? It's kind of it's kind of a hallmark holiday, but you know that's okay. It's also a great opportunity to let the people that we love know how important they are to us. My favorite thing about Valentine's Day, apart from my wife, is the bag of all red Tootsie Pops that come out this time of year. I don't know if you know that or not, but Valentine's Day is a big time for that. It's all cherry Tootsie Pops. And cherry Tootsie Pops, just so you know, if you really want to kindle my affection, is my favorite candy. <laughs> so I expect bags. So one year, right kind of right when they started doing this, I actually don't know what took them so long to come up with such a but when they first started doing this, uh, they decided to repackage these bags of all cherry Tootsie Pops with wrappers that kind of mimicked the uh, messages found on those chalky hearts. You know those hearts that come out around Valentine's Day that say things like, be mine, or hug me, or whatever. So they decided to make wrappers that said that. And there was one wrapper in one bag that I bought that caught my eye. I had, it had the words, marry me, Sheila and I were dating at the time, and I, and I knew at that time that I wanted to marry her. So I saved the wrapper in my desk drawer for the day that I would eventually propose. Not sure how I was going to work it in, but I thought, I'm going to keep this thing and somehow work it in. <laughs> then, a few months later, I got down on one knee with my red Tootsie Pop in hand, and I gave that to her instead of a ring. <laughs> Both are round, if that counts. Both are very sweet in their generosity. Of course, not having a ring isn't ideal. There were reasons that I didn't have a ring. But in asking her to marry me with a Tootsie Pop, I was still getting to the heart of marriage proposals that have rings involved. I was committing to loving Sheila as best as I could. Through good times, and that for as long as we both might live. And even as I tell that story, and likely as you hear it, you're probably thinking at least one of two things. 
can't believe she said yes. <laughs> but she did. And that's pretty sweet, Dave. <laughs> There's something about the romance and the commitment found in moments like those that feel right to us because we have been wired to love and we have been wired to be loved. Of all the gifts that God gives and we share with one another, the Bible says that the greatest is love. And it is this profound truth that we will be looking at today, even as we have already sung and talked about it. Today's passage is one in which we find ourselves on the heels of where we left off last week. Very little time has passed between verse 27, where Jonathan left off, and verse 28, which is where we begin today. Today's passage as a whole represents the end of a series of questions and challenges that Jesus' enemies posed to him. In an attempt to trap him so that they would be justified in arresting and killing him. Throughout his ministry, as we know, Jesus was routinely challenged by the religious leaders of his day. And these were not honest men truly seeking God or looking for answers. Jesus actually had great affection for men like those, as we will see in just a bit. No, the men who were challenging him questioned Jesus because they wanted to trip him up and destroy him. So with that, let's look at verse 28. It reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Here we have a scribe walking in on a conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees about marriage and resurrection. It is an odd conversation to be sure, but the scribe was impressed with how Jesus answered the questions. And so he asked one of his own, which commandment is most important of all? Now if we look at the parallel account this story in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, we discover an interesting detail that is not included in Mark's Gospel. Verses 34 through 35 in Matthew 22 reads, But when the Pharisees heard that he, being Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Matthew's telling of this same story reveals that the religious leaders were intent, still intent, on trapping Jesus. After their recent string of losses, these men gathered together to devise a new plan, and then sent a scribe or a student of the law to test Jesus with it. But, as we read, it appears as though there is a conflict within this particular scribe. Verse 28 in Mark 12 said that this scribe was impressed with Jesus' answers and that he was not indignant the way the other leaders were. So what's happening here? Well, this scribe likely found himself in a situation where he was both impressed with Jesus and knew that he was expected to do whatever it was that the Sanhedrin told him to do. So like a good student, he obeyed the commands of his teachers, and he tested Jesus with another question. Still, it is safe to assume that his personal motivations for asking the question that he asked were sincere. He really wanted 
the answer. What is the most, most important commandment? So be encouraged. As we have mentioned several times over the last couple of weeks, Jesus is very glad to answer the questions of those legitimately seeking him. He welcomes our doubts. He welcomes our questions. And while we may very well get a life-changing answer from him to those questions, we also need to be prepared to have our own hypocrisy and our spiritual needs revealed in the process. It may be that the answer to that question has more to do with us than it does with him. So what about the question the scribe had asked? How was the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, going to trap Jesus with this question? How were they going to trap him with an innocent question? The question did seem innocent enough. Well, it's important to remember that there were major differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as Jonathan had mentioned last week. The only portion of scripture that they agreed was divinely inspired was the first five books of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Pentateuch, otherwise known as the Law of Moses or the Mosaic Law. And having listened to Jesus speak as one with his own authority, they may have assumed that Jesus would not answer their question with anything from the Law of Moses. He might even set himself up over the law of Moses altogether. And in doing so, Jesus would turn the people against him, making it much easier to kill him. And underneath all of that is one more detail that reveals the hypocrisy of all those in Jesus' day and today who try to earn their righteousness by obedience to the law. By asking the question, which is most important, we get insight into a debate that has lasted millennia. The Jewish Mishnah is a collection of writings that cover every Jewish law and tradition. Within it, there are 613 laws and explanations of them, along with the arguments over which laws are most important and have the highest priority. So why the debate then? Why are they debating which law is most important, which one has the highest authority? Because anyone who tries to keep the law as a way of earning salvation knows that it is impossible to keep it perfectly. Anyone who tries to obey the law as a means to salvation knows it's impossible to keep it perfectly. But, but, if the law could be broken down into a list of must-obeys and try-your-best-to-obeys, maybe we'd stand a chance. It sounds silly, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous. Well, <laughs> to prove that there is nothing new under the sun and that Christians do the exact same thing, let me ask you this question. Who has heard, just raise your hands, who has heard of mortal sins and venial sins? Okay. So the Catholic Church has broken down sins into those two categories. There's mortal sins and there's venial sins. Mortal sins lead a person to hell without the possibility of redemption. 
And there are qualifiers and things that you need to do in order for it to be a moral sin. And then venial sins are essentially all the other ones. All the sins that are categorized as minor violations of the moral law. As though there are sins that God really hates and then sins that God is cool with. But it isn't just the Catholic Church that has categorized sin in a way that God does not. Protestants, non Catholics like you and I do it too. If you don't believe me, look at how we handle the Ten Commandments murder and adultery. Yeah, those are, those are big ones. Stealing and lying. It's not, not, not as big of a deal. Right? We've come up with cute things like white lies. Using God's name in vain or breaking the Sabbath. I mean, who even obeys those? Right? If we're honest, we too have created a mental list of must obeys and try our hardest to obey for ourselves and others. But if we're really honest, we have to admit that we can't even obey our own set of rules to live by, much less God's. We can't even obey the rules that we would set up for ourselves, much less the ones that God has laid for us. Still, if we had to break it down, whether it be the 613 laws or the Ten Commandments, what really does it come down to? What does God really expect of us? Well, that's exactly the question that the scribe is asking in verse 28. And listen to how Jesus answers him in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater these. Jesus, as his answer to this question from the scribe, recites in part what Jews call the Shema. The Shema. It's based on Deuteronomy 6, and every Jew to this day is required to recite it along with other specific prayers and readings morning and night. So Jesus' words would have been incredibly familiar to them. And just so we can be familiar with it, if we're not, let's break that down, the Shema. Verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In a polytheistic world where many gods, small g, are worshipped, false deities vie for the affection of the heart of man, Moses makes clear that there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh, the Lord. And we are to worship him and him alone. It's the first of the Ten Commandments, after all. For Jews living in Moses' day, false gods and idols were easier to identify than they are today. Different nations, different cultures, different peoples had their own spiritual gods with names, attributes, and images to make idols of. Each required some form of worship and sacrifice, and each threatened to steal the affections of God's chosen people. 
and ultimately bring to ruin. How many times do we see it happen throughout the Old Testament? For you and I, though, a new crop of false gods have risen to steal our affections away from the one true God. They aren't quite as easy to identify. They're much more deceptive. And as such, they're much more dangerous. And what makes them so deceptive and so dangerous is that they are rooted in potentially good things. They're rooted in potentially good things. Tim Keller described our false gods this way. Any potentially good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. It is anyone or anything that absorbs our hearts or our imagination more than God does. It is that person or that thing that we look at and say, as long as I have him or her or that thing, I will have meaning and value and I will be secure. My brothers and my sisters, Allah, nor Buddha, nor Shiva is God. But neither is your spouse. Your kids are not God. Your mom and dad are not God. Your wealth and your work and your accomplishments are not God. Your government is not God. Your safety and your comfort and your security are not God. And most of all, you and I are not God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is God alone are expected to love him. In verse 30, Jesus continues, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, unfortunately, we only have one word for love in the English language, and it gets thrown around fairly loosely. Pretty loosely. As such, a person can love tacos, they can love their wife, and they can love God and use the exact same word. It's quite confusing. It's terribly unfortunate. But in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there are at least four words for love. One means brotherly love. One means romantic love. One means familial love. And another means God's love. And that is the word Agape. And it is that agape that Jesus uses in verse 30. Friends, agape is a love of commitment, a love of choice, a love of sacrifice. It is a promise. And it is not dependent on attraction or circumstance. Rather, agape love exists despite those things. It is that kind of love, my friends, that God has set upon you and me. And it is that kind of love that we are to reciprocate unto Him. 
with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, our spirit, our emotions, and our intellect. But why has Jesus put our love for God above all else? What about obedience? I mean, doesn't God expect us to do the right things and not do the wrong things? Yes. But God knows that out of one precedes the other, and it doesn't work the other way around. Here's what I mean. A person can obey God without loving Him. Did you hear? You can obey God and not love Him. But, for the one who truly loves God, obedience will always follow. If you love God, obedience is always going to follow. The theologian John Owen said it this way, Christ accepts no obedience to Him that does not proceed from our love for Him. He will accept no obedience to Him that does not proceed of our love for Him. Our love for God must drive everything that we do as Christians. And as our love for God increases, so will our desire to be with Him and to know Him and obey Him and glorify Him. When we love God with all that we are, we will do those things, but something else happens. Our love for others will increase. Bringing us to Jesus' second in verse 31. Jesus said, the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The second commandment that Jesus gives actually is not new, it's as old as the first. The commandment to love one's neighbor is explicit in the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with loving God, if you look at them. And the last six deal with loving our neighbor. In fact, every law and every commandment are summed up in the two commandments that Jesus said were most important. Love God, love others. You will not find a law or commandment that does not hang up one of those two things. So then, how are we to love our neighbor? As we love ourselves. As we love ourselves. But we are, I think we're so familiar with this phrase, love your neighbor as you love yourself, that I wonder if we miss some significance I mean, Jesus is saying, you already love yourself. You already love yourself. Now do the same for others. Oh, Dave. I don't like myself. Yes, you do. I can prove it. Ready? You cleaned yourself, fed yourself, and got yourself dressed today. And you only do things like that for someone you love. Here's one proof. I really like this one. Think back, okay? This is a little exercise. Think back to the last time someone showed you a group picture that you were in. 
You got it? Who was the first person that you looked for? Well, <laughs> Dave, I have terrible self-esteem. That may be. But do you know that even that is evidence of self-love? Even bad self-esteem is evidence of self-love. If you didn't love yourself and you had bad self-esteem, you'd be glad you were in such bad shape. I mean, seriously, haven't we been glad when people we don't particularly like doing terribly and then they got what they deserved? And conversely, aren't we upset when someone that we love is struggling? Friends, even our insecurities or our lack of self-esteem find their roots in our love of self. We want things to be better because we love ourselves. Now, hear me on this because it's important. Jesus did not criticize people for loving themselves. Jesus did not criticize people for loving themselves. On the contrary, he expects that we will. After all, God has made us in his image. He calls us the apple of his eye and his beloved. And more than all of that, he sent his only son to suffer and die in our place so that we could be children of God to be with him and love him forever. But when we love ourselves more than we love God and more than we would love others, self-love becomes sinful at worst. And it becomes spiritually and emotionally unhealthy at best. When we love ourselves more than we love God or more than we love others, it becomes sinful. It becomes unhealthy. Loving ourselves more than we love God and others is honestly what leads to arrogance and pride and insecurity and our lack of self-worth. And as Christians, we are not called to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. This is masochism. And to begin to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, Friends, we first have to concern ourselves with the people that God has surrounded us with. We have to care about what's happening to the people that God has surrounded us with. Because he has put them there for a reason. In our work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, wherever it is that we go, they are all our neighbors and they have eternity in front of them. Secondly, we need to get to know these neighbors and ask them how they are doing. And as these relationships grow, we can sit with them at lunch before at school or at work. We can go out to coffee together. We can invite them to dinner. And as they begin to share, feeling comfortable to share their physical, emotional, or spiritual concerns, get the privilege of being able to meet them as we are able. And then we get to pray for them because we are always able to do that. 
And if it's possible, pray for them right then and there. Don't just tell them to pray for them. Pray for them. Right there. Right there. And while you are together, as God rules these relationships, look for opportunities to tell them about Jesus, even as you love them like Jesus. Give them the reason for the hope that you have in Him, and trust God to do the rest. You and I must tell what only God can save. I think the reason that we're so quiet is because we're afraid that we're going to be rejected, as though salvation and receptivity to Jesus Christ falls on us. Friends, it does not. Jesus draws. Jesus saves. Jesus is the one who carries people out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. It is our job to declare and to trust Jesus with the rest. A few years ago, a friend of mine and I went out to eat. He showed love to his neighbor, specifically our waitress, in a way that really struck me. It really struck me. And so, I said, man, I'm going to start doing that. And we start, I started doing it on my own. Like my friend, I now ask our waiter and waitress their name. How often do you do that? Ask your waiter and your waitress their name, and then ask how it is that you can pray for them. Do you know that out of the hundreds that I have asked, most everyone is blown away and delighted by expecting to be surprised. And maybe two or three years said no thanks, and of course you pray for them anyway, because they probably need more than anybody. <laughs> so let me challenge you. It's something that we all do, right? We all go out to eat. We all have somebody wait on us or serve us. Ask them their name and ask them how you can pray for them. I would love to get that kind of thing trending in our communities. What a significant and easy way to be Disciples Church, love the people that God puts in your path as you already love yourself. Finishing up verses 32 to 34. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any questions. To love the one and only God with all that we are, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, is at the heart of the Christian life. And it is greater than obedience or any offering or any sacrifice. It is greater than any act of service or anything else we might do in God's name. And according to Jesus' words for the scribe, to recognize that truth and to live according to it is to draw near to the kingdom of God. When I gave Sheila that church, it took about 22 years ago, it was really more than a proposal. I was demonstrating in a very, very real way my intent to love her 
I mean, I don't just give anybody a cherry Tootsie Pop. If I do, you know that my affection is fine. I don't just give anyone a cherry Tootsie Pop because Sheila knew it. That's why it was significant. In the same way, I don't promise just anyone that I will cherish, honor, serve, and protect them for all my days. That's what I was doing. And that's what love does. And love, my friends, at its root, is not a feeling or an emotion exclusively. Love is a person. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 as we finish. Beloved, John writes, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Listen, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John is saying that in order to love God and others, we must first understand that our ability to love flows from this eternal truth. Love is from God. Because God is love. And God demonstrated his love for us in that he sent his son to us. If you've ever wondered, does God truly love me? You need to look no further than the cross of Christ. God demonstrated his love for us and that he sent his son to us as a substitute for our sins and to offer us new life in him. And love as God gives it is more than an emotion and it is more than a feeling, even though both are very often present. Love as God gives it is a decision of the will. And it does not end just because feelings do. is not self-serving, it's self-sacrificing. We don't love one another because of what we're going to get, because of what we can give, and because of what it is that we have already received. And if God so loved us, and he does, we can love him and one another. How? Well, by receiving the love that God us in his son, a full display for all to see as we hung upon the Roman cross. And then, having received that love, we love in return. Only with our eyes fixed on the cross of Christ can we know what it means to love, to love him and love others as he loved us. Only with our eyes fixed on the cross can we forgive as he forgave us. Our ability to love and forgive our friends and our enemies 
has been made possible because the one who first loved and forgave you and I now lives in you and I who have put our faith in him. The one who loved and forgave you and I now lives in us. That's what makes love and forgiveness possible when we think to ourselves it's impossible. So do you want to know, my friends, what matters most to God? Are you finding it hard to love God or believe that He loves you? Are you struggling to love and forgive those that God has put into your life? Then we need to fix our eyes and our mind and our hearts and our souls and our strength upon the cross of Christ where God loved and forgave you even while you and I were His enemies. That's when He loved us. He doesn't love a future version of us. He loved us when we were as far away from Him as we could possibly be. While we were sinners, while we were His enemies, God set His love on us and sent His Son to us. Then, having received His love, having focused your eyes and your heart and your strength and your soul upon the cross of Christ, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, allow God's love to flow into you and through you, then back unto Him and unto others. It doesn't end with us. It flows into us and through us, back unto God and unto others. Friends, of all the things that we can ever do for God or our neighbors, Jesus said that love is the greatest. And God's love received must be a love reciprocated. God's love received must be a love reciprocated. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, what gifts you need to give to us? The person of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have given us faith to believe in Him, hope to set upon Him, and love to return to Him and to others. But the greatest gift that you give is love. Help us to understand what love is by considering how Jesus has loved us. He loves without being loved in return. He loves not just his friends, but his enemies. He loves by caring for a person's spiritual needs, not just their physical or emotional ones. And he loved by serving him to his own death on a cross, though it was a death that we deserved. Father, we cannot prevent this apart from the first time we received your love in Christ, and then allowing Christ to live and love through us. Help us, God, to abide in you, and depend upon you and trust in you to increase our love for you and for others. Cause us to see Jesus as greater than anyone or anything and may he always remain our first love. Transform our lives, our homes, our communities, our nation, and our world through the love of God in Christ and receive all the glory for it. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.